Welcome to Drinks with Defenders. I'm Addie B. Plate. And I'm Kayla Murphy. We're two law school friends turned criminal defense attorneys turned podcast hosts. We're here in this space because we now work in separate offices and miss collaborating with each other. We've been talking about creating a podcast for years where we talk about the complexities of the criminal justice system, the aspects of it that we grapple with, and the importance of what we do. At the end of a long work week, we want to sit down, have a drink with each other, and talk about the rabbit holes of criminal defense, just like we always have. So let's get into it. Cheers. Hi, Clark. Hey, Justin. So, (laughs) So this is Drinks with Defenders with an actual other defender other than myself and Kayla. But I would like to add the caveat that just because Kayla's not on the podcast tonight, that does not mean that I didn't see her this weekend, which is actually really cool. I got a text message from Kayla, I believe on Friday, saying that she was randomly going to be in my city. So we went and got drinks last night and had the off, yeah, had the off the pod kind of catch up um, with her husband, who's also a criminal defense attorney. So it was the three of us. And then my partner who is not a criminal defense attorney, just (laughs) overwhelming somebody who was not at the table. So um, I don't know what that feels like at all. Like. You don't know. <laughs> and so, in place of Kayla tonight, I think that um, we have a very qualified fill-in of um, another public defender who actually has his own podcast. And so, something I was wanting to talk to him about is not only that, but also the things that we do on Drinks with Defenders, which is criminal defense. But um, please welcome to drinks with us, Justin, and hanging out with the Defender crew. Um, Justin, this is Clark. Clark, that's Justin. Um, Kind of some context. Uh, Clark is all things non-legalese on this podcast and also like our voice of wisdom. And he does all the cool (laughs) shit behind the scenes. Clark introducing you to Justin and introducing everybody else to Justin. Justin is my favorite coworker. Um, He's an amazing Uh defense attorney. Uh, He went to a very bougie law school, which I'm going to give him some crap about. But he is... um, also somebody who has his own podcast. So he is somebody who has dabbled with this while working a very crazy workload. So um what's a bougie ahead. law school? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what is a bougie law school. I'll, I think I'll take bougie, it. It is bougie. Justin is somebody who went to a top 15 law school or something like that. And I'm very proud of him for that. Um, he is somebody from small town Idaho. Uh, he went to UCLA for law school. Um, and he now practices in Northern Idaho. So he's kind of like, I view him as kind of a hometown hero. He's back helping a community that is very similar to the one that he's from. Um, he's also now my neighbor in Spokane. I helped him move to Spokane so we commute. And uh, great, great choice for my life. Thank you, Eddie. <laughs> You're welcome. So um, he is somebody who, you know, 
I think that Kayla and I sometimes on the podcast talk about our experiences at Oregon Law, which I think every law school has the stressful atmosphere. I can only imagine what it was like going to um, a law school that's even more intense and then choosing the route of being a public defender, I think is probably more uncommon for you, Justin. And so if you want to, at any point, if you want to interject about your own experience, please do. But um, I I think, I think bougie is a good descriptor for UCLA law. It's, it's not, I don't know. It's a very competitive place. It's very, there's a lot of emphasis on kind of getting a big corporate job and going and making as much money as possible. And then hopefully they can convince you to give some of that to the law school someday. Um, and it, it feels very rackety. Uh, but there is also a, a like strong public interest community that I think later in my law school career, I got pretty involved in. I worked for Native American tribes, helping them like draft their legal codes and then took a prison law class that I think was pretty influential and and made me decide that I mean I think I was taking a tour of a uh, prison in California and I like just had a moment where we were like observing people in solitary and someone yelled this is hell and I was like I think this place shouldn't exist and I should like do something to get people out of it and I wasn't sure I could like handle being a public defender and I'm still not sure I can handle being a public defender some days but like I mean who can right yeah I think in that moment I was like that's what I want to do and then kind of life happened and I ended up back in North Idaho and it all just kind of worked out. But I think being a public defender is way more my speed than UCLA was because I'm not a very bougie person and I'm pretty apprehensive and skeptical of kind of the trappings of an institution like that. And I think being a public defender gets me like in this, I, I can like carry that skepticism over into like the cr- criminal legal system and like, make those points in a way that's like helping people and it's very satisfying like overall i have questions but i have to say before i forget on the note of skepticism i think addy and kayla would be very proud of me because i engaged in a conversation last night that took on that perspective and it stemmed from the influence of this podcast in the conversations that go (laughs) on here (laughs) so like that that already resonates with me and I'm not even in your guys' world. Um, like going back to what you said in regards to getting someone out of like, would you say the solitary confinement? Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's where I, I saw someone in solitary and he like looked at looked at me and yelled, This is hell. And I was like, Oh, well, that's not good. And it was <laughs> it was it was kind of a, a life-changing experience in some ways. And I, yeah. I think it's like I wanted to do whatever I could to make sure people didn't end up in there or get them out of there or whatever I could do in that capacity. And at that point, it wasn't clear, but I think I'm kind of doing it now. So that's cool. Yeah. So like, does the skepticism play into like, I don't think that's a good idea. Like, maybe there are better options. Like as far as like prison and jail goes? Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. I consider myself a prison abolitionist. Um, I, I think that pretty much most things we could do other than like reverting to like capital punishment for a lot of stuff is like probably better than prisons and jails. And I I think especially I felt that way before, but now that I've worked this job for a while and see that like the bulk of what the criminal legal system deals with is like DUIs, drug possession, uh, possession of paraphernalia, 
like weird stuff like no insurance and driving without privileges. Like for every case that someone imagines when you say like prison abolition and and that shouldn't like you, the like kind of heinous crimes that that evokes for some people where they're like, well, what are we going to do with these people? I think from my perspective is like based on the fact that there are like millions of people who get caught up in the system for, I, I think things that if people were aware of kind of the the churn of it all, would, they would feel that they that this is a poor response to it. And I think instead kind of investing in communities and people on the front end and especially because like criminalization and what ends people up in the system is generally a function of poverty or racism right. or all of these other structural factors. I think if we did more work on the front end to prevent those things from being criminalized, like all of the money and time and resources spent criminalizing that stuff would be much better spent on the front end preventing that process to begin with. And I think if you did that on a large enough scale, eventually like prisons and jails as we know them wouldn't need to exist and they would look so different than, you know, the right. prison system that warehouses a million plus people um, that it would be, you know, you could say that we no longer had prisons. But I, I think that's all very idealistic. And I don't know that you can put that into practice as a public defender. It seems more like harm reduction uh, most of the time. But uh, it is kind of the, the ideal there is kind of what keeps me going in that harm reduction role because it seems very important recognizing like the real kind of pain and suffering that the criminal legal system creates. I want to say before we get into unpacking all of that, welcome Justin Ackerman to the podcast. You just got why I adore working with this person, why I think um, we need people like him in roles that are, you know, across the country. Like I feel so fortunate to work in the office as somebody who I think it's very apparent comes to work every single day with that energy and it keeps me going. And I think that in a role so um, crushing as public defense, as I've talked about it multiple times on here, really the thing that gets me out of bed every single morning is the opportunity to work against so many of the things that he just mentioned and also getting to work with people that come with that take every single day. It's like the hive mentality of some of the other attorneys I'm so fortunate to work with really get me out of bed when it's like, I feel like I'm combating these huge institutional problems that I I would be an idiot to think that I have any sort of like chance against. But it feels like this collective power of like, I'm suited up against these other people who are like trying to move the needle in some way that just is so big. And so I'm so happy he agreed to be on the podcast tonight. And I just like appreciate that I you, you all got to hear the rant of this person that is just so brilliant and such a good person um, and is what we do as public defenders and criminal defense attorneys. And with that, I think it's important for us to all take a drink. So I am going to start with <laughs> Justin. What are you drinking tonight? I'm drinking a Red Hook Big Ballard Imperial IPA. Um, what would you give it on a scale of 10? <laughs> um, like a six. Okay. Okay. Yeah, could be could be better. It's not terrible though. Clark, are you not drinking tonight? I uh, I have this um under the table. <laughs> very sophisticated water bottle. <laughs> hey, we support sobriety on this podcast too, or just people not drinking every single night. Hydration is also very important. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm actually where I'm located tonight is 
the cabin where my band rehearses as well as does recording. And so I'm in the middle of all these pages of notes of working through our mixes with uh, our lead singer. And as a result, I'm not drinking because I need to stay focused to get stuff done. <laughs> so been doing that all afternoon and I'll return to that whenever we sign off of here tonight. Justin, some context. Clark is uh, like all things sound and and everything production behind this podcast. He's in a very cool band. Um, he and another person who used to be on this podcast uh, knew each other from their their music interaction and also a job that they used to have together. And so uh, I like that Clark kind of brings this take that's just interesting to the podcast, and we get like little glimmers of his like band life. Um, but I, I also think it's really important to have people who aren't like brain poisoned criminal defense attorneys like have that perspective sometimes. <laughs> the rest I'm, of us are just drinking the damn Kool Aid of just like rage. At listen, I'm still brain poisoned and just in other ways. <laughs> what are you drinking, Addy? I actually made a cocktail tonight with the caveat of I'm drinking bourbon, which is like a very like if I've had a week. I'm drinking bourbon. So I'm drinking bourbon with cranberry juice and mm. limeade. And I know that cocktail to be called a Scarlet O'Hara. So that's what I'm drinking tonight. 10 out of 10 would recommend. Um, and so, yeah, I'm in rare form drinking my favorite house cocktail on the, on the podcast tonight. So, <laughs> okay. I know we're, we're doing it. So, Something that I really, I apologize for, I really wish she was here, but it, it's kind of unfortunate that Kayla and Justin don't get to meet. Justin, we might have to have you back someday so that that can happen because I feel, I feel like with Kayla, something that we've talked about is just like how cool our friendship was and, and why that kind of created this podcast. And some context is like, I really feel like you're kind of that version of like my co my colleague that's like, you know, I feel that we're just like friends and that 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 we have like things that we can talk about. And it'd be so cool to have the two of you meet. But Kayla and I were talking about like what we wanted to ask you about and just, you know, some different things that I think that you could potentially have more insight to in terms of like things that we miss on this podcast. And so a couple of things I wanted to to pitch for you to weigh in on. Um, because I don't really have a role in it. Um, one would be specialty courts. And then another thought that I had, because we've talked about it vaguely, but I think you have more experience than Kayla or myself do, is trials. I think that you've gone to more of them, certainly than either of the two of us in the past year. And I think you also have kind of a reputation, at least in in our office and certainly just in the community that we practice in, where you will go to trial. And so... I kind of want to unpack your thoughts on the role that you have in the specialty court system and also like explaining what that is for people who don't really have an understanding of that, explaining what it's like to work in it, if you feel comfortable talking about that. And then also yeah, just totally. kind of your attitude towards like preparing for trial and kind of the ebbs and flows of that because it can be really hard. Um, and I think that you're somebody who has really embraced that in a way that is just like really cool to see. Oh, well, thank you. I'll, I'll start with the specialty courts. I have lots of thoughts on both of them. I mean, I guess, especially with the specialty courts, I'm going to talk about it as though I'm assuming 
people involved in the specialty courts could someday listen to my thoughts on it. So it may be a little more tempered than it would be otherwise. For Um, those of us who aren't involved in a specialty court, what is that? Yeah, totally. So specialty court, generally, um, it's a court that has like a, a particular focus based on the kind of charge that brings a person to the specialty court. So uh, for instance, I am on the DUI court panel in Kootenai County and work the DUI court for our office. And um, it, it focuses obviously on people who have gotten multiple DUIs or excessive DUIs where the blood alcohol content is really high. Ostensibly, it's focused on treatment and it has a kind of different approach than just throwing someone in jail or the kind of traditional route of supervised probation or something like that. Although I think in practice, it's not that different than supervised probation, but um, it's it's ostensibly very treatment focused. And the idea is you sign up and you go to court, you know, two times a month or so for a year, year and a half, however long it takes you to get through all of the treatment. You're drug tested regularly. You meet with probation, the judge, the treatment team, they all kind of coordinate together and then they check up on you. And if you do well, generally, they give you some incentive. Most of the time in the DUI context, it's kind of reducing a charge from like a second offense that has more jail time hanging over your head and everything to a first offense or a felony to a misdemeanor. Uh, I think drug court generally works the same way with felony to misdemeanor reductions. And then there's like mental health court for people who have some mental health diagnoses that plays a role in bringing them to court to begin with. And so the teams meet together. There's a domestic violence court. I, I think there's a veterans court starting up. So there's a focus on kind of the what is seen as the particular issues that are bringing someone into contact with the criminal legal system. And I think it's an attempt at a kind of different approach, a more treatment-oriented approach. And I think to the degree that that's true, in my mind, it's kind of a step in the right direction. I think in my personal experience, I think it's more of an attempt at a step in the right direction. Because I think in practice, um, it's it's not that much different than probation. And in some ways, it's worse because the level of like scrutiny and supervision is is more intensified. So if you're someone who's really going to struggle to get through probation without failing drug tests, or you're not going to do well in treatment, you know, the judge is getting a direct report from your treatment providers in a way that they wouldn't in a different context, probably. Um, And for some people, it's really good, and they get through it no problem. um, And they get the benefits of, in the DUI context, if you're part of the treatment court, you get to keep your driver's license. And generally, you don't have to do any mandatory jail time that is asked of you on the front end. You just do some community service or sheriff's labor program or something. And so there are there are benefits. And if you're someone who is like very committed to the kind of version of recovery that these, these treatment courts push, I think it, the benefits are worth it. And if you don't mind coming to court, it's probably worth considering if you're someone who finds yourself in that situation. I think my biggest problem, though, is especially in the DUI and drug court context, is just that I think there's a very like moralized kind of focus on sobriety that doesn't like... I think, give people the tools to navigate a world with alcohol without just kind of straight abstinence. It's a very kind of AA-centric approach. And in some ways, kind of, I, I don't think in the court system really relies on the like religiosity of AA, but I think taps into kind of the same like moral values of like 
You have to be sober. Abstinence. And you have to be sober for sobriety's sake. And if you don't, you're going to end up, you know, committing more DUIs or drug crimes. And I think that, you know, if you're someone who's gotten two, three, four DUIs and you're in that situation, uh, maybe there's something there and and you are someone who just has to abstain totally. But I think it's kind of a one-size-fits-all approach that isn't realistic with how people um, actually navigate the world and the situations people will find themselves in once they're off supervision and out outside of the the realm of these like wor- rules that they have to follow and that are enforced through probation and whatnot. But if you're someone who really is like, I have had a drinking problem and I want to change my life and get sober. I think it's a like very structured environment that probably does help you do that. And I think the people who I've seen who are successful and who are very committed to sobriety, I do think get like something out of the community that is like everyone's kind of in recovery together. You come to court together, you go to treatment together. You you find people who are in similar situations in their life because of substance abuse issues. And I, th- I think the, the community aspect is, is cool in some way that like you don't really get in probation and just kind of the straight court setting and the kind of supervision setting otherwise. Um, as like a defense attorney, it's kind of frustrating because the board I'm on is a bunch of prosecutors, cops, and treatment providers um, the treatment providers and the, and the coordinator of the program aren't so um, like jail happy, and they don't they they I think they listen to the the kind of more recovery centric ideas when someone gets in trouble. Like if someone's failing drug tests, there'll be a meeting, and how do you approach this? Do you send them to jail? Do you give them community service? And there's this discussion, and I I think the biggest problem I have is there's a way in which it gets kind of like very focused on sobriety. And when people like fail to meet that that bar, jail and other consequences get get brought up. And some people who really struggle with it get caught up in this kind of cycle where I think they end up with a much more significant amount of jail time and kind of struggle throughout the process than they might if they were just doing supervised probation, for example. But... It, and then on the flip side, like if you're someone who's going to do well in that context, you probably would have done well in probation. So it's and it's frustrating being the defense attorney and trying to argue that people shouldn't go to jail for these things or whatever when the kind of system is so lopsided towards those as the solutions to these problems to begin with. And I think it's important. You just broke down a few things that I kind of want to touch base on. Um, you talk about the panel of people, at least in your specialty court, and and I've I've been I've watched court. I think I um, subbed for you once in, in DUI court. Yeah, it seems have. like I it, I believe the team is like three prosecutors. So a prosecutor from each agency that we practice against. So the two different city offices that are, you know, um, opposing counsel in all of our cases, and then one from the from the county. Um, then there's the treatment provider, the coordinator, you. Um, probation um and then and, a representative from the sheriff's office and the city police department and then the judge and then the judge so in that panel of people the person who is in your role is the only person that is a defense attorney is the only person that is really um situated for the people that are in the treatment court or specialty court um, as counsel for those people. And oftentimes, 
you're not even really the attorney of record for everybody that's in that program. So, well, and I was, as you're saying that, like, yeah, there's a lot of people who are kind of going through the program and seems about like an attorney for the most part, like no tea, no shade against any of the the people who are representing the other people in the program. But I think it, it's only, you only really are contact, like that attorney really only knows what's happening in the program when it comes to a head and you're getting in trouble. And like in a significant enough way that they have to come to court for it. Otherwise, I don't think that they're too involved for the most part. Or they come at the end when somebody's successfully completed it, which is amazing. But they're not yeah, there sure. typically day in and day out. You are the only person that is in a council role, really, that's on this panel. Um, and and that's always... I, I felt kind of a, a hard thing that at least I think we've talked about um, in terms of like what that panel looks like when every person's case is getting presented. Um, there's like staffing weekly about you know, the people that are in the program, how they're doing. And that gets reviewed by that team weekly. And the only person that is like from a defense perspective in terms of like the concerns that we have that are like, you know, very different than I think probation or or the treatment provider or the coordinator or prosecutors, the only person for a, a big group of people that has as like some sort of advocacy from a council from... Uh, protecting their interests is you. And you might not even be their assigned attorney. So um, that's always been kind of a difficult thing that I've thought that's very interesting about um, the way our county does um, specialty courts. So I think that's one thing I also think you touched base on the fact that like specialty courts are um, very interesting and that people go to court frequently, like all the time. It's usually every other week or weekly, depending upon what's going on with their case, if I'm not misunderstanding that. Right. Yeah. And then for some people, like, I think it's important to also just something I've thought about with my career. It's not just traumatic, I think, in my opinion, for people to go to jail and have punishment like that. It's it's a lot for somebody to just go to court constantly. And sure. the DUI court that you are a part of, the courtroom that they go to is out at the jail. So people show up to the jail whenever they have to go to court. And, and sometimes they like people get taken into custody and everyone sees it happen. And like you kind of come to court, I think, you know, hoping like, I, I think most people have a sense for how they're doing in the program, but like, you know, you might not know if you failed your last drug test. And it may, it may be because you like took NyQuil and it, it tested positive for alcohol instead of like you were drinking. And then you have to go stand in front of the judge and the whole panel and a room with like 40... 50, 60 of your peers, depending on who all's there, and, you know, be held, quote unquote, held accountable for that or whatever that means. And, yeah. and it's, it's very, you know, it's very daunting. And sometimes people are doing this for like two years, like twice a month. And it's, it's a huge commitment. And I think um, sometimes it's worth what you're getting out of it legally. Sometimes it's not. And I, 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 I struggle with it sometimes because I think, it's just, it's very geared towards a certain mindset. And, and the team, I think, reflects that. Like, it's not, it, it's kind of designed to accommodate the kind of broader carceral system. It's like assumptions more so than like actually create something new, which is what it's like held out to be. And I think people involved in those programs like really think that's what it's doing. And I, I don't want to like, 
be so cynical as to say it's not like a slight improvement because I think there are some ways in which it is better. But I, I think it's like a lot smaller than a lot of people who are involved think it is. And I also think like two things like, you know, it's hard because it's like if you're going to dangle a carrot of like, you're not going to get a felony, you're going to get a misdemeanor. Like, I've thought about what that is for so many of our clients in different, you know, realms. And it's like, depending on who the person is, like, of course, they're going to jump through a ridiculous amount of hoops to get that on the table. Um, especially like given their life circumstances. So if somebody's like, okay, I'm going to go through this process that's going to ask so much of me so that I don't potentially have the option to go to like prison, like some people are going to feel like that is, of course, what they're going to do. And I think to your point, like it is a very intense program sometimes for people. And I think that like on the back end, they might end up spending a lot more time in jail than they actually think that they're going to. Um, and so well, that's and like a difficult thing. I think that thing. happens to a lot of people, especially because yeah. they sell it to you as though like, hey, you won't have to, you know, that 10 days of jail you have to do on a DUI second. Like you won't have to do that if you do this. Like you'll just do some sheriff's labor. And I think people are like, oh, okay. Like that sounds yeah. good. And then by the end of the program, they've served 22 days. And if they get terminated, you know, a long time, because then the judge who sentenced you is like, oh, you failed out of DUI court. Like you can't do probation. You have to go to jail. Right. And it's just, I think, it, yeah. it sets up a bad situation. I think that's kind of the other important thing to point out is like specialty courts, you are kind of like your sentencing is kind of getting like postponed. So you're just kind of like hanging in this like limbo of like, I'm going to do this program and hopefully it goes well. And if at the back end, I successfully complete it, then this is what happens to my like underlying charge and underlying sentence. If you fail, which happens, you go back before the court and say you've done like a year of this program and then just like little things have happened or accumulation of things to the to the point of which you are terminated you then go back before the court and you are you know paying the piper then right like you have to go back before the judge oh, yeah. and be like hey and it's what's just happening the same as it's the same as if you had gone to the judge before you even did that whole year and in, in a lot of ways it's worse because now you have the kind of the fact that you failed out of the program, so to speak. And right. the judge is like, in every case I've seen, like really holds it against you. Right. Because um, it's viewed as like, you had this amazing opportunity and you blew it. I yeah, also wanted to point sure. out, just just in general, I know, that especially since we're like, going down the DUI court realm, and this is like a show that's like, has alcohol or a podcast that has alcohol at its center. Like, I think it's important to point out, like, I acknowledge the fact that like, you know, everyone's to Justin's point, I think relationship with alcohol is like a very complicated dynamic thing. And I think that when we've talked about your role in DUI court, I really appreciate the fact that like, you try to recognize that. And I think that like, the criminal legal system paints people who have any sort of charge where alcohol is like a, a contributing factor as this thing that it's like, oh, somebody like was under the influence of alcohol, they immediately have an alcohol problem. And I have kind of a, a fundamental problem with that because that very well may be the case in some instances. But like, I think about all the times in my life where like I've been drinking and if things had gone very differently, like I would be 
you know, in a very different situation where I could be painted as somebody who has an alcohol problem. And now I'm on a show where, or on podcasts where we drink. And it's like, I want to acknowledge the fact that like sobriety is a really good option for some people. And some people it's like, you know, I think everyone's relationship with alcohol is like, it's not so simple. And I like really think that that's an important thing to just contextualize because like some of my clients, like sobriety might be a really good option for them. For some of them, it's just like, okay, like you had a bad night. And like Kayla and I have talked previously on this podcast about how common I think it would be for someone to get a DUI just based upon like our culture and like honestly where we live in Kootenai County, like things are spread out. And so like, you know, people make decisions that are not so black and white. And I think that the the criminal legal system tries to like conceptualize, like conceptualize life as black and white. And I don't think that's the case. And so I appreciate your comment. And I just wanted to say, especially since we're like talking about some, you know, charges where alcohol is a central point, that since this is a show where we talk about alcohol, that I wanted to acknowledge that like, I don't want to be a hypocrite on this show where I'm like, hey, Let's talk about alcohol while we're, let's drink alcohol when we're talking about DUIs. Like that's a bad look. And so I just wanted to say like, Hey, you know, your point about what treatment and sobriety looks like for every person isn't so simple. And I think that that is like the future, I hope of the criminal legal system. Like when we talk about the things that we can do and the needle we want to move, like, I don't know if drugs, alcohol, anything will ever be viewed in like the person by person context that I wish it would be. But that's something I try to like have in my own practice is like what this person's story is like and like taking that away from the general like stigma around any of those things. And I think that to an extent, we've culturally thought that like treatment is the option and the alternative against, you know, incarceration. But it's really important to recognize that both of those things also have this really complicated hand-in-hand relationship in the current push that we've had within the criminal legal system. And I don't know if you feel that way, Justin, but it's just like, it's not... I feel like we've kind of culturally came to a point where it's like, okay, let's not incarcerate people. Let's get them treatment. But the way that that is structurally organized kind of has them as like playing off of each other and they're extremely interwoven. And it's like, okay... For sure. I don't think that we've found the right solution yet. No, for sure. And I think even... I, and I think that's the thing is like, that's my biggest problem is like treatment courts kind of hold themselves out as something different. But because they're so interwoven with jail and these traditional options and probation, I don't think it ends up being that different. And, the, and the, then the context of kind of like treatment in in most criminal cases is kind of done coerced, frankly, you know, it's it's done at the behest of the judge. It's done because you know, you're going to go to jail. If you don't, you know, you're going to get a probation violation and have to deal with that. And like, that's a, a real motivating factor for people. But I think a better system would kind of incentivize creating like pathways to recovery, like that you engage with before you're involved with the criminal legal system. And it's like, cause I think there are like, I think almost everybody who is in a treatment court program or has reached that point where their substance abuse problem is getting them 
engage with the criminal legal system. Like, I don't think, I think almost all of those people like recognize that they have a problem on some level yeah. or like yeah. that this is negatively influencing their life and there are changes they could make to prevent that from happening. And I, I like, frankly, do not really care if people choose to use drugs or use alcohol to, to excess. Like, I, I think yeah. you shouldn't drink and drive because it's dangerous, but like, Otherwise, like I don't have like a moral problem with it. And I never really encourage my clients to like get sober. I'm not like, if you don't get sober, you're going to keep getting charges or whatever. I just am like, you will come to that when you come to that. And I will be here to provide resources if you approach me for it. But otherwise, like you are going to make the choices you're going to make. And I think most people like, it's just, we're not really like, I, I think for a lot of like instant, like, a lot of the institutional pressure to get people into treatment comes at the behest of probation, comes with jail hanging over your head, comes yeah. because you're going to go to prison. And I don't think that that's like an accident. And I think it's part of like the inertia of the system we have because it is the avenue by which most people who like reach that point in their lives, like engage with those systems. Not most yeah. people, but like a significant chunk. And I just, I think that's a big part of like, trying to imagine something different that like makes those interventions on the front end. And if you think about all the time, money, energy, resources spent like policing those things, if it was like spent like connecting people to treatment, like and, and making that accessible, like funding it, like whatever it may be on the front end, I think you would have less DUIs, less people like addicted to drugs in a way it's becoming a problem for the community and like all of the things that ostensibly treatment courts in the broader like carceral system are trying to fix on the back end right on the and back i think end, yeah and i think mm -hmm. that you just pointed out something that i want to like kind of seamlessly transition into this like second piece of just like I, I something I think that's really interesting just in general of like being a, a criminal defense attorney is like everyone has different styles in terms of the dialogues that they have with their clients. I think when I have conversations with my clients about substance use, it's genuinely coming from a place of just like, I am concerned about my client's well-being and not about necessarily like the consequences for their actions. I will point out what I think those could be. Otherwise, I think I would be a bad attorney if I didn't point out what I think yeah, potential definitely. consequences could be for them. But I genuinely like, and maybe it's an overstep, but when I have a client who shares what's going on or I'm made aware of like behaviors that I think could just put them at risk in terms of like their well-being, I always come from the conversation of like, I care about you. These are options. I, I don't want to overstep. If you eventually want to have that conversation with me, like we can have that conversation and I'll point you to resources. But to your point, like there's so many things, whether it's substance use or just decisions in, in, in cases where it's like, you kind of have to just like lay out, like here are some options and your client really has to just be the driver, like it's their life. I think we get concerned for about sure. things going poorly for them because we are in a position where I feel like we're just like trying to protect them and trying to like look out for their best interest. And we have all these different hats we have to wear with them. But I think something that's really like amazing for you is that like, I think you as an attorney, give your clients the confidence to make whatever decision that you they want to make. I don't think that you're, I don't think you pressure your clients at all. I think you just like give them the plethora of options 
And you really like come at your job from a place of like, I am here for you with whatever option you choose. And I think that sometimes I struggle in that capacity because I view when my client wants to go to like trial or my client wants to try something that I like am scared won't work out, I immediately get extremely protective of my client. And I feel like I just am like a bulletproof vest for them because I'm like, I cannot protect you from things that have uncertain outcomes. And I will glue myself to you in terms of like trying to do everything I can. But the uncertainty, I really hate. And so I think you're really good at embracing that in a very like supportive way. And I don't know how you do it. It's incredible. Um, I think you're seasoned beyond your years in that capacity because I think you have the confidence of just like, we're going to do it. And I envy that. I, I think like transitioning to the point about like, you know, you taking risks and like the the confidence you give your clients of just like, hey, do whatever and I'm here for you. Where does that come from? Like how, when you are like talking to a client and the conversation comes to trial, what is that like? So like, like frankly, like it is like, I think the criminal legal system is something that like, takes away so much control from people and so much agency that I don't ever want my clients to feel like I am part of that, that I am also doing that to them. So I like yeah. make it very clear in any decision they make, like I will tell you if I think this is a bad decision, but I will like a hundred percent like try my hardest to make it a good decision. Like, and I will 100% like go over it with you and prepare you for it. And I, I won't, I won't spin it like, you know, I'll, I'll be realistic about like all the things that could go wrong for the prosecutor. Like, I'm not going to try and hide those things because I don't want you to, you know, make a like overestimate the potential that a witness won't show up and go to trial when it's a real loser just because you think that might happen. Like, that is a thing that happens. And I will tell you that. And like, you make the decision based on all of the data points I'm giving you. And and I also think that like, when clients are very like... In, when there might be like evidence that suggests that the client's version of events like is is more convictable than they think it is, like I will tell them, but I also don't spend a lot of time like trying to like you know talk my clients out of like uh, like going to trial or something like that because I just think that like having your day in court and feeling like I am there supporting you and feeling like we're doing what you want is like more important than anything else I can provide as far as that goes, other than like maybe keeping you out of jail or prison. And like most of the time, like I will tell you, like if you go to trial and we lose, like you might go to jail. And like that's a real thing. And I try to be straight up with the consequences too. And I, I think like I'm also very, and I think this has grown a lot since I've done more and more trials is like, I'm very, because I didn't used to do this before I'd done them, but now I'm very like, I love trial. Like if you go to trial, I will try super hard to win and who knows what'll happen. And like, I kind of just pitch it. Like I was in a mediation once and a judge like referred to trial as like, kind of like gambling. Like you could always win and like for stupid reasons and have no idea why. And I try and like pitch that to my clients a little bit too. like. The, just the totality of like a lot can go wrong I ha and that cuts both ways like we could totally get screwed over and I have no idea what's gonna happen like but like it's it's a risk you can take that will make all of this go away if we win and and I think when I have super hard-headed clients we're like I'm never gonna take a deal 
I'm just like, are you okay if I don't negotiate with the prosecutor? Like, we'll, we'll just go to trial. And if they say yes, then I'm like, well, we're going to trial. Because it's like, if you don't want to take a deal, I'm not going to try and convince you to take one. Like, that's not my job. My job is to do what you want. And like, I think it makes those clients trust me less if I'm trying to get them to like, even if there's like good deals on the table that they like maybe should take for like very legitimate reasons and impacts it's going to have on their life if they don't. Like I will communicate those to them, but like it's generally in a way that's kind of like, I know you're not going to like take this and you'll probably tell me to tell the prosecutor to like, excuse my language, like fuck off or something. But like, I'm fine with that. Like, we'll still go to trial, but I have to tell you because the prosecutor sent it over. And like, usually they're like, okay, no, I still want to go to trial. And like, I also just like really love trial. And I think in my experience, like I have won cases that I thought were like not good and were losers. And I've lost, I've lost a couple that I thought were like winners. And it's just like super unpredictable. And I try to like more than anything, like stress that. Like I have no idea what's going to happen. I have no idea what the jury is going to be like. I have no idea what the judge is going to rule on these things. But if you want to like take that risk and we win, like this goes away. And that's the only way like outside of like a couple other circumstances that I don't see here that we can do that. And I think for some people, like I think almost every client I've gone to trial with has like a certain demeanor and a certain attitude toward the situation they're in that like incentivizes them to go. They're kind of hard headed. They're like, fuck you. I didn't do anything. Like, and when it works out, like those people, like I'm like, that's the like highest high of my job is like when we have one trial, especially with clients who were like super invested in it and felt super aggrieved and just like being able to walk away and like that's all gone now. Like it's it's super, super satisfying. And I think in a way to them, like now they don't have to go to jail or something. Like, and I've had some clients that probably would have done some jail time if we lost. And I just think like that is like a really great feeling. And like being there through that with someone, like every time I've gone to trial with a client, I end up like liking them, even if I like didn't at the beginning. Like by the end of the day, I'm like, you're my guy now. Like we're like, <laughs> we, went, we went through this together. Like, and it's, it's just like it's my favorite part of the job. So I like yeah. I don't try at all to like if my clients like are doing it and it's a bad decision, I like will tell them it's a bad decision. But outside of that, like I don't really try and like, you know, like I'm gonna get a better deal on the table and you should really consider it. I'm like, you made the choice, we're going to trial. Like and it it works out sometimes in ways you don't expect. I think the thing that I like really envy about just you as a practitioner and just you as an attorney is that you have this, I don't know, it's almost like a soft-spoken charm where I think that juries and just opposing counsel and really kind of everybody that we interact with day to day just finds you so charming. Where when I've watched you in trials for brief periods, like your client can seem so hot-headed, but you seem so not that way that like to the jury there can be like bananas stuff going on in front of them. And you're just like very not confrontational and have this like different aura about you as an attorney, where I think sometimes your clients have seemed very unlikable at first blush. But then as you're like litigating the case, to your point, I feel like they always seem sympathetic at the end. And you have this craftsmanship about you in terms of how you do that in a trial that is just so cool. Um, and I think that sometimes it just like works out really well for you. And um, it's like a really, really cool thing to see. I think that 
something I've learned is just kind of everyone has their own way of doing this job and no way is right. It's just kind of whatever way feels right and works well for people. And we're all kind of working on that constantly. But you just are very like kind of this calm in a chaotic storm that I think you are just naturally, you're just that way as a person, but you're also that way as an attorney. And it's a really different, it's different than how I am. I think I come across as very like intense. um, And I am, I guess, but like, you're very like, calm and like you I feel like come into client with your into court with your client you're like we fucking got this and like even if we don't I'm gonna poker face it and just be like cool about it and I don't like I don't know how to be that way and I just I respect the hell out of it but um I guess my only parting question for you if you have anything you want to share uh, with this podcast because it's something Kayla and I talk about because and if you don't want to please tell me to fuck off Um, but with Kayla and I constantly talk about how hard this job is because it is really, it's really fucking hard to be a criminal defense attorney. I think it's really hard to be a public defender. I think it's really hard to be in this position, regardless of if you're in private practice or public defense, I, it's hard, um, to do the things that we do. You are a little bit more seasoned than me. Um, you also have like a little bit more background of like being in that high intensity environment at UCLA. Um, and now you're in a very different high intensity environment in terms of like, I mean, you had to make time to come on this podcast. So thank you for that. But like, I know we constantly have a million things that we need to do, but in terms of like what you're doing to take care of yourself or the things that you find hard or just like the soapbox you want to go on about why this is so hard or what needs to be prioritized, please do. No, happily. I think it's like by far the hardest thing I've ever done. It's also like by far the most rewarding thing I've ever done. So like that is like, you know, makes the hard moments like easier in some ways. Not easier, but like more like, yeah, easier to bear. Like it it just kind of knows that like, when the, if this works out, like when this works out, when I have another moment, when we're like, when I'm winning or like doing something to like help my client in a significant way, like, um, and flip those because that's the more important priority than winning. Um, but like when those, <laughs> when those moments, <laughs> when those moments happen, like it, it, it is very much worth it. But the like lows are also incredibly low. Like it's very like, I just so many like traumatic conversations with clients about like very real things that are happening to them, like physical trauma, mental health issues, substance abuse issues, like families falling apart, like every kind of traumatic thing that can happen to someone. I think I've had a client that it's happened to up to and including like being murdered, like, and you have to kind of like deal with that every day. And I think there's a way in which like, I'm so used to it now that like, I kind of forget that those things are traumatic until it like all hits me in a moment. And then I'm like, Oh, wow, like I've been dealing with some shit lately. But like, I didn't like, kind of deal with it as it was coming because it's just like there's too much it's too fast and it's like you know some of the like most like pain and suffering i've ever seen is like at this job and those moments will probably like stick for me forever and like how to deal with it i think like i I really like spend a lot of time with like the people in my life you addy like my friend tanner um like lots and lots of people like just kind of always being social in that way and like connecting and then like kind of to the extent that I can with people outside of like work like venting that 
and getting the kind of like, wow, that's like kind of fucked up perspective to just like not become like jaded by the fact that like I see it every day. Like there's some ways, like I already am more than I used to be. Like there's some ways where it's like, I'll get a client who like has to serve 10 days in jail. And I'm just kind of like, well, at least it's 10 days. Like, and it's like, that's like not an attitude I like to have. So it's like when it, like I can get the reaction for those things and like really appreciate that these aren't things that people experience every day. And it's like really hard. Like that helps a lot. I think just trying to find ways to like turn off my brain and like not think about work, like is it's really hard. Like, I think pretty much every activity I'm doing at any time, like I will be distracted by like client issues or things that I'm dealing with at work. Like I'll just think about like, what am I going to do in that case? Like, what do I need to file here? Like, what am I sleeping on? But like, to the extent that I can, like watching sports, reading, like doing my podcast and writing and stuff like is, has always been helpful. But it's, it's like definitely the hardest thing I've ever done. And I think very, very brutal in some days, even though, like the highs are very high, but the lows are really low. We've said that so many times on here. So I appreciate it coming from somebody else like you. We, we talk about that a lot. And um, small shout out to Justin's podcast. Uh, it's the Millennial Review. I hope you're okay with me pitching that on here. It's really good if you're into political sure. podcasts. Um, please give it a listen. Um, we find it? I... Uh, I think it's on pretty much every you know major podcast app and, and Patreon. Cool. Sorry give to cut you off, no, you're good. Give him a listen. Um, I I love hearing about news from Justin. This is awesome. Me pitching to you, Justin, that you need to make an updated uh, episode because I really love your podcast. Um, and I just oh, love hearing so. about political takes from you. But um, something I just wanted to say too is like I um I just really appreciate like the camaraderie of like like you coming on here really speaks to it. But like we have a good thing in our office where. Um, I think at the end of the day, like the team of like the misdemeanor attorneys that Justin and I are part of, like we are constantly checking on each other. And like, I think it kind of slips on me. That's also a huge important thing. It it slips on me how important it is that like I have people in my office that I debrief like what happened in court with that day so that I can talk about it before I go home. And like, it's just so, it's so cool to have like this group of people that I feel like a badass with when we go to court together. Like I'm in court and it's like, I'm in court with some of my friends that are also in court having to fight for their clients. And we're in this really brutal thing together. And like that, like experience makes me feel like a badass when I don't feel like a badass because there's days I go to court and I'm like, I am so screwed. I don't know how to figure out this problem for my client. And the fact that I'm there with like other people that are like, going through it who maybe I've talked to about the issue and like they will have my back when I like can't think of something is like the most amazing experience as a young attorney. And um, it's really cool that somebody who has been a part of that has come on here because this is where I come and talk about the cool parts of my job. And um, there's days that are really hard with this gig. But to your point, like, I think we both fucking love what we do. For sure. I feel really grateful for that when it's hard. It's like, yeah, this is really hard. But like Kayla and I talked about it yesterday because we were talking about jobs and she was asking my partner about his job. And we were talking about like, it's really cool to find the thing that's worth suffering for. And I think that like the criminal legal system is just full of a lot of human suffering. I think it's the pinnacle of human suffering, at least in America. Um, and we're like kind of in this piece where it causes like suffering in our own life. But to your point, it's super relative to like what our clients are going through. And it's For really sure. an amazing, it's a really an amazing thing to be like, I feel so privileged to be the person that gets to kind of like be there for them through that. Um, and that's 100%. what being a criminal defense attorney is. So 
Clark, um, I'm going to turn it over to you. Well, first of all, Justin, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks it's for having been, me. Yeah. It's, it's been cool getting to hear your perspective. And it's apparent to me, just having met you over Zoom <laughs> in this short <laughs> amount of time, <laughs> that you are very similar in Addie and Kayla in that you seem to put the human first above well, thank institution. You. That's above, what we do. Yeah, like that's so wild to me. And like, and for me, that's super encouraging because like I mentioned, I was I watched a YouTube video on someone getting pulled over for a DUI and they were going through their field sobriety tests, right? Did I say that correct? Justin's yeah. shaking his head. <laughs> yeah. So and that's the thing that I was being skeptical about with with someone in a conversation. I don't know. I was just putting myself in their shoes. I'm like, mm-hmm. what if that was me? Like, I would feel so screwed. But then whenever I hear you guys talking, I'm just kind of like, ah, there's still hope in the world. There's still good people out there. <laughs> it's that damn hope that like gets us to work every single morning. And it's like sure. that damn... And I feel like at the end of the day, like really, if I boil everything down about my job, like I have hope, which is why I do what I do. But like trying to give that hope back to my client in terms of like their circumstances is like to Justin's point, giving them their agency back. Right. Like that's why people have counsel is like to try to give them their voice back because they're, they've recognized that they might not have the skills to really advocate for themselves. And so, um, that's the coolest part of our job. Um, but it is like a whole weird thing where we're constantly putting our, ourselves in our client's shoes and, to your point, Clark, it's never good. Like it's, it's, ne- it's never good. So. That's awesome. Well, yeah, I can't wait to have you back on, and especially when Kayla's here. Thank you so much for being here, and um, thank you for being somebody that I get to see at work tomorrow. It kind of gets me out of bed on a Monday. On well, that thanks note, thanks again for having me. And um, not unfortunate that- because I'll see you, but unfortunately, I'll see you tomorrow. I'll see you tomorrow. And on that note, as we end on the podcast, cheers, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.